This is the European edition of Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. We bring you the European unicorns, startups, founders, regulators and leaders innovating the rapidly evolving fintech scene today. A truly localized podcast with both English and local language content with some of the world's most well-known hosts and influencers in the fintech sector globally. Join us every week as we explore what makes the European Union a phenomenal proving ground for many of the fastest growing fintech plays in the world today. Okay, let's roll. Hello and welcome to episode number 80 of Breaking Banks Europe. I'm your host Ajit Tripathi and with me I have Iana Dimitrova, uh, Dimitrova, the CEO of OpenPaid uh, and Ronit Kors, uh, Head of Banks and Fintech Research at City. Uh, welcome guys. Hi Ajit, Hi. pleasure to be here and thank you very much for having me in OpenPaid today. Welcome. In fact, thanks for making the time. So, uh, yeah, today we will, you know, talk about uh, news from the fintech front. And uh, you know, I, I come from crypto. There is a there is just too much excitement about crypto recently. So we'll probably not spend too much time on that because I think everyone is talking about it. And we will try and uh, you know cover uh, the most exciting fintech news from the last quarter. Uh, so, so in fact, uh, let me get started by you know uh, first of all asking you, Yana and Ronit. Uh, what fintech news did you find most exciting in the last three months? Ah, that's 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 a really good question. So, uh, first, maybe uh, Ajit, I'd, I'd start with just a few words on the the crypto. I think uh, without going back to the excitement, as you said, because I would not necessarily call it excitement, especially for those that have a vested interest. But I think we 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 see a very clear trend there, and we see that trend across multiple jurisdictions, multiple geographies to actually uh, push together a united front for regulation whether that is on, on coming from the US uh, about, uh, I guess, uh, declaring any transfers above a certain limit to obviously uh, Turkey as well as as well as well China. So I think the, the, the direction of travel in so far as the digital currencies uh, are concerned um, is, is, is quite clear as in uh, direction in terms of uh, uh, regulation and some, of, some form of centralization and, and control. Um, I think in so far as I guess the the rest is concerned, probably the the biggest thing that I noticed without focusing on specific companies, and we can come to to that point in in a minute, is the uh, huge, I guess, um, action or movement when it comes to um, uh, the the market in terms of amount of funds that have been raised and is being raised uh, and is being poured into into fintechs. It seems like the last quarter we we see uh, is probably going to be yet another another record quarter in terms of funding into the the fintech space uh so that's that's at least from my perspective but would love to hear uh ronin's view as well thanks Ayana. just to pick up on what Ayana said there if i take each of her points and then maybe add a bit of a sort of local or regional perspective so taking that last point on fintech funding 
Absolutely. There's a lot of money that's come into the space. Um, and when you listen to the likes of the, you know, quite well-known fintech founders today in the UK, so the the likes of the Anne Bodens of the world, when she talks about how difficult it was to raise funding for her and how she, you know, famously that original team split up at Starling and most of it, most of them went to Monza. Part of that was basically funding was really, really hard. Um, today, if you're in a small group of kind of in air quotes successful fintechs, you're just getting fire hosed with funding. But one has to sort of caveat that heavily by saying there's a concentration both on the company side, the entrepreneur side, and on the VC side. So what's happening is there's more and more funding sort of coming from a smaller and smaller number of these giant VCs or even growth stage investors who've come from the public market. They've come, you know, into, I would say down to, but across into the private markets. And there's a real concentration of funding there. And they're coming down, like not just in just pre-IPO or series G or whatever or H, they're coming into C and even series B now. And that's that's one interesting thing. The other one is like geographic dispersion of funding is interesting. So there's a concentration on the one hand, but there's also dispersion. And as you were discussing, Anna, um, I'm sitting in Dubai. And one of the reasons I'm sitting in Dubai, well, there are many, uh, but one is um, I moved out here because I think the last frontier, if you like, for fintech, um, when it comes to geography is definitely this part of the world. When you look at Africa, Middle East, it's like 1% of global fintech funding last year probably went into this region, if that. In fact, when you look at those studies that, you know, whether it's whoever does it, like, you know, all the usual famous sources that provide these fintech funding sources, you know, studies, you often do you see Asia, Americas and Europe on the map. You often even don't even get data for Africa and the Middle East. I think we're seeing now, and I don't want to mention any or plug any particular companies per se, but yeah, you're seeing some really interesting developments happening. And it's kind of like you maybe saw in, in India seven, eight years ago, or in Southeast Asia three to five years ago, you're beginning to get repeat entrepreneurs, people who built businesses either in fintech or elsewhere saying, I'm going to do another project and they might be coming out of, you know, they might be coming out of ride hailing, going into fintech or payments, uh, but you're getting this ecosystem developing. I, th- I think it's super interesting. That's point number one I mentioned. The second point on digital money and crypto, obviously, Ajit is our resident expert here. I mean, um, particularly when it comes to DeFi, I mean, he knows way more than, you know, his little finger than I do, right, Ajit? Um, but the kind of the kind of trends I'd highlight where uh, I, for me is interesting is, um, with my sort of big bank research hat on is it is different this year and for the last maybe six months, as in it's not mainly retail, high net worth individual driven at board levels, at senior exco levels, very you know, senior sort of divisional head levels across Wall Street, you're getting people engaged. Now, there is a question to be had of what the last two weeks volatility was going to mean for institutional money and institutional involvement. But it feels very different. They love it. I can tell you, you know, institutions, certain institutions love volatility, but we will go into that a little bit later. So so let's uh, let's look into this, right? So Revolut, uh, so, uh, you know, it, it's really hard to filter out crypto news and focus on anything outside of crypto. When I go to the Reuters news page and I, and I have to go for a while, click for a while till I find anything other than crypto. So, uh, which is great for our space, but let's focus on this for a second, right? Revolut, 
on the path to 10 billion valuation with new funding. That's on April 17th, uh, 2021. I mean, 10 billion, what's a billion anymore? I mean, do you think this type of valuation is justified and what's really going on there? I think that I think that's 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 a great question, Ajit, and I'd probably not comment on whether the 10 billion revaluation of Revolut is justified or not. But I can certainly tell you from experience talking to investors that one billion valuation is 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 no longer uh, raising eyebrows. It 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 is perceived to be the bare minimum for a conversation to continue. Now, what what we see is. Um, that there is the uh, the element of the uh, the FOMO, the fear of missing out factor from from VC firms. So there are certain firms that have got into banking as a service a while back and are are reaping the uh, the, the results of that. And others that didn't get involved early on are now desperately looking to to deploy funds. Now I think um, there isn't really a uh, Hundred percent understanding of the, the 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 overall ecosystem, and many firms are still trying to find their angle, trying to find their own investment thesis. But if there is one resounding theme that comes uh, out of all of them, is that clearly the space is large enough for there to be multiple players, more than 10, 15 players, at a valuation of ten billion. And above, and we hear that as a recurring theme from VC firms of different sizes that that are investigating that market. So, maybe from from that perspective, that ten billion valuation, frankly, does not really come as a surprise to me. The question mark is how sustainable that is, and and we see that by the way with the likes of Marketa as well. Very recently, Marketa went for I believe it was a sixteen billion valuation, going on for ten years now, not necessarily in in, in profit just yet, but we see that as a recurring theme, which to me signals the confidence of investors into that space in the future of the, uh, if you will, the digital banking as a service and, and generally the digital delivery of goods and services. Yeah. So, Ronit, you and I are survivors of, you know, uh, the dot-com boom when we used to have Abby Joseph Cohen and a few other analysts really go bullish on everything to do with dot-com. Have you entered a dot-fintech era where everything to do with fintech is must be valued at a few billion including let's say uh, i'm looking at another news article which says figure it's 32 billion valuation on 200 million raise so what's really going on how much of this is driven by the fact that there is excess cash in the ecosystem and you know vcs are becoming private equity type growth investors and they have to deploy capital somehow and how much of it is really you know are we going to see a whole vintage of terrible returns or what's going on so it's an interesting question. Um, I think part of what is going on is that um, a lot of VC is about pattern recognition or pattern matching, right? A lot of investing in general is you look at, oh, that worked. And maybe life in, broadly, but investing is that that worked. So hence this will work. So there's a lot of people saying, oh, I made money in fintech in Brazil, and as a result, or I didn't, or I missed it, probably more like I missed that. So now I'm going to look for the next Brazil, That's right. Egypt or Nigeria. And so I'm going to write these checks. These are options for me, a few million dollars. If it goes to zero, it goes to zero. But if it works, I'll have got in in the Series A or Series B on something that's going to become a unicorn or a decacorn. And the same's happened, you know, people who missed or didn't get in early enough in India 
looked at Southeast Asia, in, in India, China, West China. And this is happening now, you know, across, um, there, there is a lot of kind of, yeah, FOMO. Yeah. But at the same time, there's been real value creation, right? And it's hard to disentangle how much of this is just money supply and credit creation driven. But the end result is you've had, you know, you look at the US listed market. Today, payment companies and fintechs that are listed, you know, the big names, they have a market value north of one and a half trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 10 years ago, that was sub 100 billion. Most of these companies were not listed. Yep. They were just getting listed after the financial crisis. So there's been like ballpark a trillion and a half dollars of quote unquote value created in the US alone. If you add it in China, the rest of the world, that'd be a bigger number. Um, so people look back on the last 10 years and go, okay, where's the next, you know? And then you look at products created and, and what has that been created? It's been largely created because in consumer in particular, not so much an in institutional, but in consumer, banks have either forgotten how to build or regulation or culture makes it hard for them to build. Yeah, it probably probably. And fintech basically fills that gap. Yeah, for sure. So I, I think uh, you know, uh, continuing on that. So Coinbase had an IPO worth hundred billion. Uh, I think currently worth about less than that, uh, somewhere around fifty to sixty billion uh, after after a very very frothy launch. Uh, and and one of the things Brian Armstrong, CEO of Coinbase, said was. You know, so he criticized fintech for essentially just wrapping, uh, not his words exactly, you know, taking the old rails and not really, you know, changing the infrastructure and wrapping, you know, old rails into new apps. I mean, uh, so Iana, do you agree with that assessment or is that overly critical? I think uh, uh, I can definitely see where he's coming from because you know very well that uh, banking as a service providers like OpenPaid are running on uh, legacy rails, whether those are the SEPA rails, the faster payment rails, the or or, or the Swift rails. Now, uh, so from that perspective, I think he 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 does have a point. But equally, what we have to think about here is what does the customer want? And for example, in the case of a corporate customer. Uh, what they want is the ease of the integration and they want the, uh, I guess, agility of the integration layer that can enable them to pick and choose the services that they want. So fundamentally, I guess what I'm saying is that uh, customers are still okay to use the traditional rails of, say, the SWIFT network or the SEPA network for so long as the integration is delivered to their doorstep. It's a single API. It is easy to integrate. It is scalable. It's microservice-based, and they can then pick and choose what services they they want. But if we are uh, thinking about completely revolutionizing payments and, and banking, yes, there is still a long way to go because there are still multiple touch points to the uh, centralized systems and, and payment rails. And that, as a result, I guess, comes with its limits when it comes to transaction times or cost of, of moving moving money around. So another, uh, that, that that's a very good point. So now another, uh, you know, news article that I found interesting was that Rabobank, right? Uh, traditional uh, Dutch bank in, I forgot the name of the city, but it's quite a nice one. Uh, Utrecht is spinning off its treasure up venture through a series A funding round together with Australian listed cross-border payment specialist OFX. 
I mean, we don't see a lot of this type of corporate uh, venturing, right? Where a bank is essentially spin off, spinning off uh, what can be a, quite a valuable business on its own instead of just trying to keep it inside the four walls. So that's a remarkable news. And I mean, what's what's going on there? I think I think that's that's definitely a, an interesting move, and that's probably the reverse move uh, because what we've seen that historically, what we've seen is banks actually investing or buying out companies that are uh, going on their own and 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 I guess providing an alternative access. So yes, from 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 that standpoint, I guess this is an interesting move. But uh, equally, I think going back to uh, 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 that reproach from Coinbase that fintechs are not really reinventing the ecosystem i think i think we're going back to the same point of the use of of of, of traditional of traditional rails i mean certainly being outside of the ecosystem of the uh of, of the of the bank of the incumbent bank makes innovation and and i guess uh, tech development much easier much more agile yet there are still the same barriers and touch points and and, and price points when it comes to uh, i guess the traditional payment rails yeah yeah uh, so, so ronit you might find this interesting right uh, coming from uh competing i mean obviously i'm not sure if you're supposed to speak about you know for your peer banks but hsbc I mean, uh, the CEO just said today that Bitcoin is not for us, right? And uh, I mean, I don't know how I feel about that, but I definitely am closing my account at HSBC. Uh, and meanwhile, they're saying HSBC to take on uh, fintech rivals with multi-currency digital wallet. What exactly is a multi-currency digital wallet if it does not involve uh, crypto or actual digital currency? And what are they trying to do there? Sure. Um, so when we talk about multi-currency digital wallets, um, they're meaning obviously multi-currency, multi-fiat currency. Um, there are a few of these. I mean, you know that. And there, there are a few. There are a few of these banks that do it. Um, they have different names, but the idea is kind of like having a. And obviously, a fintech was the first to do this. Um, it goes back to my earlier point about product development. You basically end up having synthetic accounts in multiple currencies in multiple jurisdictions, but at the client interface end, it's like one packaged product. Um, many banks have it. Ajith. We can uh, we can share ours with you later if you want to get you signed up. Um, and it's it's pretty neat. Um, it started as a consumer product. You could go and um, uh, yeah, you, you, I think it's I can't remember if it started in Hong Kong or Singapore. Okay. But it's, it's spread across the world now. I um, mean, you have this basically um, multi-currency. You basically your debit card becomes a local currency debit card, where whichever whichever geography you're in physically, or if you're shopping online, it becomes a local debit card. And well, now companies are trying to broaden this out into the corporate space, particularly the SME space. So, is this a me too transfer wise or a me too revolute? I mean, what's going on there? I mean, from, from my said, perspective, you know, it's 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 a really interesting one because actually multi-currency digital wallets have been around for over 10 years now. I mean, looking back, you know, to uh, 20, 2010, 2011, you already had the likes of money bookers at the time that then became Skrill, the likes of Nutella that, that are offering exactly that. And yes, I take Ronnie's point that it started with consumers, but it was you're logging in online and then you have a balance in, say, five different currencies of your choice. And then you can go and spend them online depending on where you are 
car in the respective currency. And then later on, you would have a card that's attached to that. So how how is that, you know, a step forward for consumers? I, I personally struggle to see because that solution has been around for, for a while. Okay. So this is one of the cases where a big bank, a high street bank is doing 10-year-old innovation. That's that's pretty awesome. Okay, I was being sarcastic. Yeah. Well, it helps on distribution, right? I mean, there's there's a difference between product innovation. I'm not basically. It's not my job to justify or defend HSBC on this call. Just to be clear, <laughs> uh, on the Zoom. Um, but you, you know, you know, who's expecting? And I don't want to pick on HSBC. Let's just call it generic ABC Big Bank. Yeah. I, you don't expect ABC Big Bank in 2020. 2021 to be necessarily at the product bleeding edge, right? But if they can fintech and distribution of the big banks, is that what's going on here? Yeah. I mean, what the big bank has is you can plug that innovation into the distribution. And that goes back to your corporate VC point. Why do people in very different models, you know, that exist and have done for 10, 15 more years, why do people have CVCs or corporate VCs? Just the idea of sometimes innovation is hard to do inside, not just a bank, any big institution. There are some exceptions, but most big institutions find it difficult because they become process-based. So externalize that and bring it back in. But the bring it back in bit is the really hard bit. Um, very few banks today, not many. Like, I'm no longer based in the UK. So, I mean, others on the call will know this better than me. But I mean, how many UK banks offer multi-currency digital wallets? Not many, right? Yeah. So that's why you have to go to these fintechs. Wow. Uh, and people, hopefully, we can start traveling again this summer. And you know, you're in Portugal or Spain. If your high street bank offered that to you, you wouldn't have to go to a fintech. So it's kind wow. of so. So, Ronit, there is another another one for you. You know, the, one of your favorite topics. We mentioned Bitcoin and we mentioned HSBC. So we have to mention uh, e- ESG. You know, and I, I don't even know what the full form is: environmental, social, and governance. So Deutsche Bank used to be a tech company. And now apparently they are an ESG company. So always up with the times. So Deutsche Bank creates ESG center in Singapore. What exactly is an ESG center and what are they trying to do over there? And why is a bank involved? It's not like they're mining Bitcoin. ESG, particularly climate um, net neutrality is, is a big thing for all senior leadership. It's not just this one particular German bank. Everyone is, and it, it comes from, these big public institutions, the banks are responsive. They have to be responsive to external stakeholders, be they investors, institutional investors, governments, other parts of society. And it's just so front and center right now that you have to have, you know, a ESG policy, hopefully a well-thought-out ESG policy. It, it's just like almost, well, you know, as the Americans say, it's table stakes. If you don't have it, it's... But there is an element of... Was it five years ago, actually, that everyone was running around saying we're a tech company around 2017? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. John Cryan, I was in a meeting, you know, I was a meeting at, with, uh, with PwC senior guys uh, and John Cryan, and John was all about being a tech company. Now, are they an ESG company? Uh, so, you know, what are your thoughts on ESG and and what's, what's, what's going on with fintech and ESG more broadly? 
Um, I, I, I think that's, I mean, Ronnie just made an excellent point that uh, first it was all about being a regulated institution, whether that was an e-money institution or a bank, then it then then that became not really very popular or sexy. So it was all about, and it still is all about being a tech company. And now I guess we're moving into that, that huge push of sustainability. I think it is something that uh, fintech, as any other business uh, for what is worth cannot really ignore. Uh, there is also uh, a significant pushage, as you're aware, from central regulators to, to, to push companies to bring that forward planning in future planning around sustainability at the forefront of the corporate agenda. So I believe that this is something that uh, uh, management teams do have to take into consideration. Now, whether it is viable to go as far as saying we're no longer a bank, we're no longer a technology company, we're now an ESG company, I, I believe that this is probably pushing it at least at, at this stage, or at least there has to be more evidence uh, uh, backing that statement and more action action driven uh, to, to back that statement. And, and right now, frankly, I don't think that we, we, we see that. So, There's uh, still an awful lot of work to be done on that front. So, so it's early days. Yeah. I absolutely agree with that, early days. So bankers will wear Patagonia shirt like Silicon Valley, shirts like Silicon Valley VC and go around saying they're doing ESG. Is that the revolution we're going to see next week? Uh, I mean, what Actually, kind they of already have been? I doing? won't comment on that one, Ajit. Nickel. I'm I'm all on green, right? I'm very big on green, and I, I want to avoid plastic and all of that personally. But it's, I don't want to avoid plastic. It's been, it's been the uniform in Midtown New York, Midtown Manhattan for at least five or seven years, Ajit. Yeah. Keep yeah. up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm all for corn straws, but then we shouldn't be using these big water bottles in, uh, in hotels. But anyway, moving on from uh, that, yeah, we are, you know, I think coming to uh, almost 26, 27 minutes. So I'll, uh, let's take a break and then we'll come back for more exciting fintech and banking news to see what the trends are and what's really going on out in the world of fintech. Join Amsterdam Fintech Week from the 4th to the 11th of June. Meet companies active in the digital finance space such as Mambu, Accenture, Plaid, PayPal, Buckaroo, SAS, Allen & Overy, TechLeap and representatives from the European Commission and the Dutch Central Bank. Go to xfw.amsterdam and get involved. Welcome to episode 80 again, news from the fintech world. We have you know, Yana Dimitrova, CEO of OpenPaid, and Ronit Coast, uh, head of banks and fintech research, research at City. Before the break, we were talking about Patagonia Vests and ESG in banking, uh, how everyone is becoming an ESG company. By the way, I'm very supportive of ESG. I just uh, don't want it to end up like... Uh, you know, corporate social responsibility or becoming a tech company, which makes me very skeptical. But anyways, we'll move on very quickly uh, from that. And uh, and if you're talking about ESG, we have to talk about Bitcoin, right? Uh, so Elon Musk, uh, our, uh, this gentleman named Elon Musk, the founder of one of the best known fintechs, aka PayPal, uh, had some not so great things to say about Bitcoin after actually buying and making almost a billion dollars on Bitcoin, at least before the dump. So, so what's going on there with the Elon Musk and Bitcoin, and how is the world of fintech looking at that? I don't know where to start, Ajit. On Elon. <laughs> it's 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 a if tough I, one, right? It's a tough one. <laughs> if I generalize the question, 
and look at it more broadly, I mean, it's for sure, I mean, for the last month or two, even before Elon Musk uh, public tweeting, we were getting a lot of questions in my sort of role as an analyst on the environmental aspects. And I, I think it's particularly in Europe, budget that you get a lot of questions about this. Um, not so much in, I haven't had that many from the US or Asia, but it's very geographic based. Um, a lot of institutional investors in Europe will raise this. Is this the, you know, is it the electricity consumption of Sweden or Netherlands or Ukraine or whatever the country is? You know, it's a middle-sized European country, right? That Bitcoin is supposed to. And we know all the arguments for renewable energy, blah, blah, blah. But, but it comes up a lot. And then given, given Elon Musk's comments um, and other comments, public uh, comments, this has just got another leg of life of its own. It's a real issue. Um, and we did a we did a call recently, in fact, with one of your colleagues, Ajit, uh, that you joined last week. And you know, there's a lot of interest in the whole kind of Ethereum 2.0 upgrade. Will it happen? What will it mean? But particularly from an energy efficiency perspective, um, a lot of and you talk about the institutionalization or institutionalization of this asset class, people care about this. Yeah, people should care about it as well. I think President Xi of China, you know, has kind of made a very public posture of uh, of sort of making sure China moves towards uh, you know relative carbon neutrality, and 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 I think it's a it's a health issue in China as well. So so that's that's causing a political you know drive towards green and less pollution overall and better energy utilization. So it's genuinely an issue. Uh, there is also a bit of a tragedy of the commons, right? Because ultimately, you have uh, you always have this public policy aspect where a small set of uh, you know beneficiaries of uh, there there are there are always you know concentrated groups that benefit from a particular thing, whether it's Bitcoin or something else. And then there is a very large diffuse mass of people who kind of pay the externalities. Uh, so, so we'll see how, and, you know, Cosmos was always proof of stake. Uh, so, so blockchain technology has evolved quite a bit. So, uh, you know, we'll see how this evolves and hopefully Bitcoin will, this will be a huge incentive for Bitcoin to move towards Bitcoin community to move towards greener, you know, whether it's hydro or thermal or wind power uh, options, but we'll see. I, th I think ESG is a very, very big opportunity. So, so just, a, just a digression, Yana and Ronit, where are the opportunities, Yana, uh, for fintechs to innovate in the ESG space? Is this a, is, is anyone going after this? Uh, that's 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 a really good question. I think maybe just if I can come back to the to 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 your previous uh, question, I think for me the interest uh, the interest aspect is is still very much the volatility of uh, of that of that digital currency and the ripple effect it has not just within I guess the digital currency markets, but overall we see the impact on 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 the financial market. So this is really something to watch out for, and and there is a big question mark as to the long term sustainability sustainability of, of that volatility so how long can you know markets take take that on for on a go forward basis now when it comes to i guess um innovation uh in in, in fintechs within the esg space i think this is still uh very much a new uh uncharted in a way territory uh i would very much like to see that um 
I guess that that push for innovation moves out of the uh, you know the simple management corporate statements that have to be made for uh, you know the, the the various regulators to actually practical solutions for for customers for consumers and and, and for corporates. Uh, but I, I I believe that we're still at the very early stages of that, and there is still a lot of uh, work and development that will be seeing in that direction. Okay. So in the meantime, there is another news article that says common, and we are sort of moving away from Europe a little bit. Commonwealth Bank of Australia's X15 rolls out Venture in a Box platform. Uh, I mean, that sounds really exciting to me. There, there are so many things in a box these days. There is a bank in a box. There is, you know, a fintech in a box. Launch your card in a box. Venture in a box. So yeah, that's 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 uh, I guess an interesting one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, we'll get Ajit in a box soon. Yeah. Podcast. No, I think I, I, I mean the way the way Ajit, the way I look at it, and I haven't really uh, um, spent much time on this, but uh, it is it's just um, uh, one more or a different way of, I guess, uh, 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 offering and selling the um, embedded payments and finance solutions to businesses. Because ultimately, what we see in the marketplace is the following: more and more businesses are moving to digital delivery delivery channels and that has been accelerated over the last 12 now 14 18 16 months by by covid so whenever there is a digital delivery of goods and services there is a need to bring payments in and out of a system and what businesses are ultimately looking for is to embed the whatever payments and other finance needs uh, uh, and tools uh, they 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 have into their wider user journey so that the conversion rates are better so that it is as seamless as possible for the consumer. So whether we call that embedded payments in finance, whether we call it banking as a service, bank in a box, uh, venture in a box, to me, all that, all, all it, it all comes down to seamless integration of a payments and a banking solution within a wider user journey that enables the, uh, uh, I guess, seamless flow of, of funds and data. That's the, at least for, for me how I, I read that. That. Yeah, yeah. So, so there is one close. There is another uh, news article closer to home. A European Central Bank castigates banks over instant payment fees. The European Central Bank has warned that the charges levied by banks for instant payments are proving a barrier to uptake and must change. There are charges on instant payments. I mean, who, who is who is who is paying those? I thought SIPA was always free. Well, I guess on 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 SEPA instant, no, there shouldn't really be charges, or the charges are so minimal that they're 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 being being absorbed by 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 the provider. So yeah, that's 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 an interesting one. I think especially in the world of open banking, you know, and that significant push for payment initiation and exposure of uh, APIs of both banks as well as the payment provider, charging for that instant payment is, uh, I think, going to be very, very difficult. It's going to be very difficult for consumers to to accept that because it almost eradicates all of the innovation that has been done over the last few years. Now, I guess if we look to couple that uh, uh, those instant payments with add-on services around data, so imagine I'm, I have the ability to dip into your account via the API, but not just initiate a payment, but maybe also go back and see your transaction history, do some analytics on your spending patterns, then at that point, charging for that service would make more sense. And I believe that this is the direction that most fintech fintech providers are taking. 
Cool. In the meantime, digital currencies are everywhere. So, you know, the <laughs> Fed Chairman Powell opened up a digital dollar debate. Now the Fed is starting to look at stable regulation, if you follow Caitlin Long's Twitter. Uh, and, you know, the Bank of England set up yet another committee to explore the creation of a digital currency. And Bank of England, you know, I uh, had the pleasure of working with the uh, Bank of England as a consultant in 2016, and they were already probably the furthest ahead in terms of their thinking and analysis on digital currencies. Four years later, we're still doing thinking and analysis. So so what's going on, Ronit? You've been looking at this very closely. Are we going to see a European digital currency anywhere, or is this more, more committees and more research for the next few more years? I think we're moving out of the cookies and coffee and committee stage. I think we are. And part of the reason we are is um, the fact that DCP in China is live. The, uh, and there's, there's a geopolitical aspect to this without making too much of the kind of arms race or space race or the other kind of metaphors that people use. There, there is a, I mean, until 2018, Central banks, I mean, the Bank of England is actually quite far advanced, as you said, but the average central bank in 2017, 2018 wasn't seriously engaging with this topic of CBDCs. And then in 2019 and 2020, there was a big acceleration. And you, if you haven't seen it, look at the BIS reports on this. There's some really good data that the Bank of International included that in our reports. I don't, I don't plug our report, but it's in our report as well. But the BIS has this really great sort of basically they track central bank uh, speeches, comments. 16, 17, hardly anything said and it's negative. 18 more said, still negative. 19 is the first year where you get some positive, like material amounts of positive public comments from central bankers. And in 2020, just takes off, takes off. 2020, 21. What happens in 2020? COVID. And we're, we're all going digital, even like, you know, countries that are not very digital. The Chinese have DCP in half a dozen cities actually working. And you've now a year or two post Libra, post D, uh, DM 1.0. And, you know, so people are like, whoa, money is our business, not Facebook's business. We're going to do it. So some combination of DCP, Facebook, Libra, COVID. And so we're moving out of both. It's still until we actually start seeing in Europe what we're seeing in China. It's it's going to be coffees and cookies and maybe some code. Um, you can always leave code for us lot in DeFi. So uh, you know, we've it's 150 billion. I have to I have to do the shameless plug, Renata, with your permission. Oh. So it's a it's a you know 150 billion dollar almost 125 to 150 billion dollar market cap on the day, depending on the day, as you know, it's crypto, uh, and there are there is over. Uh, how much? 122 billion in assets. Uh, so it's been a remarkable growth from what used to be a 20 million odd, you know, uh, assets and borrowings, uh, or rather, asset uh, liquidity in 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 the beginning of last year. So so DeFi is you know uh, has been quite an exciting journey. Now that I've done my my plug, Iana, what's going on at OpenPaid? What's uh, is there any news you would like to share with us before we roll on to other news? <laughs> no, thank you. Thank, thank, thanks, Ajit. I mean, as you know, we're still very much in the uh, traditional banking as a service space. We're aiming to fill the gap for those businesses that do need to move money around, move money on a cross-border basis, 
plug into the traditional payment rails and do that in a in a in a really quick and, and sleek manner. So that's that's really the direction of travel for us. As, as, as you know, we are on the verge of ourselves becoming a bank here in the UK. So very much mm-hmm. really following the uh the news, following what's happening and making sure that we have the 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 set of products and services that our customers need, that we can help them embed payments and banking services within their own user journeys and uh, moving money in a in a swift and uh, cost-effective way. Right. Now that's that that's uh, that sounded sounded awesome. So, Ronit, you've been following NFTs, the wonderful world of non-fungible tokens. Now, CNBC <laughs> has launched NFTs. You know, uh, Fox News has launched NFTs. Uh, I mean, and most uh, of the celebs are now cal- uh, capitalizing on that as well. Milton <laughs> has launched NFTs. I, I have my own NFTs out there on Mintable. I'm not a celebrity, but you know what? Maybe See, I Ronit, I was just about to say that, as we know, Ajit is a celebrity <laughs> himself. So no, no, no surprise there whatsoever. Look, all the celebrities, all the Instagram celebrities showed up in Dubai in the last six months, right? Or nine yeah. months. And Ajit's here as well. So what can so I say? I yeah. So, so NFTs are, you know, uh, swiftly emerging as could be a bubble, you know, might be a bird, might be a cat, might be a very long-term trend, but it's a trend that doesn't die, right? I've seen NFTs come and these digital trading cards and collectibles come back over and over and over again. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and you know, every time they, they are a bigger bubble than the previous one. So there is something clearly here, right? And gaming, uh, if ga- gaming and other digital uh, native uh, if, uh, applications clearly have a lot of NFTs. Is fintech doing anything in this space, uh, or is it just left to us folks in DeFi to serve the NFT space? Saronit, when are we going to see a bank serve NFTs? Well, banks are different to fintechs, right? I I know banks used to say Ooh, a few years ago, every bank CEO fintech doesn't work anymore. So banks are no longer fintechs. <laughs> No, no, we're, we were tech, right? What was it? 2017 Davos, every bank was a tech company. ESG tech company. That's right. ESG tech yeah, company. I'm, I'm telling you, if any bank, it's just stupid, right? If you say you're a tech company, it's like saying you're an electricity company. I mean, yeah, we use electricity as well. Uh, so we use tech. I mean, it's just, there was a lot of FOMO kind of tech became cool, right? And fintech became cool. So um, I guess if you're a senior leader in a bank, you wanted to say you were, you were also you know, whatever, part of the zeitgeist. Um, on NFTs, it's kind of interesting, right? When you sort of step back, because, you know, you and I, you and I, you and I have talked about this in terms of applications, uh, you know, whether it's whether it's crypto, whether it's um, Ethereum-based, other DeFi-based, it's like so many of the applications are financial. It's like automated market-making or you know, other le- automated lending or some sort. But NFTs are interesting because you're getting to property rights, but kind of almost mm-hmm. beyond financial. Um, because one of the questions I get, you must get this a lot, Ajit, is like, why, you know, what's the use case? You know, it just feels like a bit like the old derivatives markets, right? Interest rate derivatives or whatever, where you were just doing more and more complicated structures within fiat. And sometimes DeFi feels like that, but it's for digital currencies rather than fiat. With NFTs, we kind of go a little bit further. Um, it's still property right based, but it's somewhat, it's a cultural yeah. asset, a media asset. That's why I think it's, it captures people's attention or attract, it gets people's attention that way. And, 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 together, Ajit. 
Yeah, just for our mainstream fintech audience, NFTs are non-fungible tokens, as in you know people selling digital collectibles, art, music, and so on as collectibles on a blockchain. Iana, sorry, you were. Uh, sorry, no, I was just uh, going to elaborate on Ronit's point. I completely agree with what he's saying that it's actually pushing it a step further. And you know, for me, the NFTs are really um, interesting because I I also tend to look at them not just from a fintech perspective, but also from a uh, you know legal perspective. As as you know very well, I'm a lawyer myself. I've done a, a fair share of intellectual property rights. So I think um, it is really interesting to see what the impact is going to be and how exactly title is going to be transferred through those NFTs. And I, I, I still feel that there are a number of open questions that are yet to be answered from a purely legal standpoint before we can actually talk about the uh, the long-term value. Because as Ronit said, yes, it is all about the uh, all about title in particular piece of art or, or or whatever it may be. And, and I feel that the, le- the the legalities around that still have to be resolved before we can talk about the, uh, the long-term uh, value. I think my point is if eBay is selling NFTs, then there is clearly a role for fintech to, to serve that market, right? And maybe so so but and 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 DeFi is obviously serving that market right now and there is probably at least you know payments and other lending services against NFTs and so on will be very interesting how people, and you're right, Yana, so to the extent, yeah, and, and, and to the extent, and, and you're absolutely right. I think to the extent that there is demand, uh, I think what what we have always seen and will see in that case is that there is a gap in the marketplace, and that gap has to be plugged. So we have to bridge yeah. that 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 gap between between the DeFi space and the uh, the fiat the fiat so demand. Buy sure. buy NFT now and pay later, right? I mean everything. <laughs> <laughs> in installments, yes, indeed. And every buy installment NFT. you can you can pay it from one of your, you know, uh, from a different currency in your HSBC multi, multi-currency digital wallet, right? But in an ESG way, you know, so... It, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, by, so when you're uh, launching that product at Arvame, Ajit? Uh, no, so in fact, that's that's a great point. So thank you for allowing me another plug. So we launched a product called ITO. And, you know, ITO is obviously has basic marketplace features and NFT features. And it also, it's a bit like Instagram for NFTs, right? So you can show, you can share, you can uh, show off and all of that, all the things you want, cool things you want to do. But you can also financialize your NFTs. You can, you know, if you don't want to sell your work of art and you want to earn an annuity against that, you can do that. If you want to sort of, you know, rent it out, you can do that. You can, you know, so there, there's going to be lots and lots of features for artists to monetize their work without actually having to part with it for the rest of their lives, right? So without having to sell, or if they want to sell, of course, they can sell an auction. So I did manage to buy an NFT on Ito yesterday uh, for, for not a lot because the market was so so complicated. But anyway, anyway so this is another... I thought you were off yesterday, Ajit. You said that you're off the markets yesterday. Uh, I was on the right markets yesterday. So, uh, okay. <laughs> so anyway, so thank you. you know, that, that's a wonderful plug. And hopefully we will do Breaking Banks Europe NFTs soon. Uh, hopefully this, this episode will be auctioned uh, for 10,000 ether or something, given that we have celebrities like Ronit Kos and Yana on our show. Uh, so any other news that, uh, you know, trend or themes we missed in this show that you think were particularly interesting from the last uh, three months? It's kind of interesting how the last three months, particularly the last, feels like last six to eight weeks has been swamped by crypto and digital assets. Yes. It almost like feels like, yeah, um, 
in a way on that it wasn't. On the one hand, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, I think we see huge amounts of fiat poured by venture firms into uh, into a few, uh, you know, a, a pool of a small pool of of, of fintech players. Ajit, as, as as you said, I think that yeah, the activity has been absolutely staggering there. So it's a combination of both. Yeah, I think one thing one thing we didn't cover is you know Plaid. Uh, they got unacquired because of antitrust uh, concerns, uh, and and their valuation actually doubled. So they were getting acquired for five billion or something, and then now they are at what eleven or thirteen billion. So so hey guys, oh, everyone in fintech, don't be in a rush to get acquired. You know, come to our podcast and tell your story. And hopefully your valuation will double. And with that, uh, you know, wonderful. And and maybe it will be in Bitcoin too, in an in ESG Bitcoin, uh, built by a tech company. So, anyways, on that uh, note, we'll you know thank our guests, Iana and Ronit. Thank you so much for joining us today for the show. Hopefully, you know, uh, this was entertaining and informative as well. Uh, Thanks to our producer, Renata, as well. And hope we'll see you soon uh, on more news uh, like this one. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Breaking Banks Europe, a Provoke Media podcast in cooperation with Fintech Stage. Don't forget to tweet us out, shout out, or post to the team at Breaking Banks EU on Twitter. If there's something or someone you'd like to hear on our cast, let us know. See you next week on Breaking Banks Europe.